Welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as we answer your questions before the transfer window slams shut. Well, Duncan, I'm back again. Mr. McGarry is still away with his butterflies, but we haven't had too many complaints, so I'm just going to go along as we have been doing, hoping that I'm doing okay. Go for it, Johnny. You're doing fantastic. Well, we've been out there on social media gathering and corralling your questions for what is going to be a bumper episode of the transfer window. First of all, we're going to go straight into the big news that Manchester United have signed Bruno Fernandes today. And we've got a number of questions regarding that. Duncan, I'm going to throw two at you to get us started. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay, from Mr. A Top-Notch Coach, he's asked, was the Barcelona offer for Bruno Fernandes real or a ploy to get United to deal? And then Razor Ramon has asked, is there a worse negotiator in the world than Ed Woodward? Well, it's uh, quite a critical question of Ed Woodward, but um, what I could say is that some of the people involved in the negotiating of the deal uh, weren't very impressed about the way he worked. And um, I think to summarise on that, it's been said to me by a couple of people very influential in this deal that were Manchester United to have taken the option they had, uh, to sign Bruno Fernandes in the summer after um, Sporting had rejected Tottenham's 45 plus 20 million euro offer for the player. They could have got Fernandes in the summer, had him available for the whole season for their new coach in his first full season, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, for less money than they eventually ended up paying Sporting in this January window, having briefed the media on multiple occasions that they wouldn't go above 50 million euros for the player. Ultimately, um, on the final day in which they got an agreement for the player, I'm told they made three consecutive improved offers. They'd improved their offer over the weekend to 55 million plus bonuses. And then they made three offers with the ultimate one um, being taken by Sporting, one in which uh, 5 million euros will be paid uh, once Bruno Fernandes, I understand, has played 25 games for Manchester United, so essentially a guaranteed bonus. Um, another five million will be dependent on Manchester United qualifying for the Champions League, um, which again Sporting expect to be paid. And there's a further 15 million of bonuses for various individual prizes that Bruno Fernandes picks up or could pick up in his five and a half year contract that he signed today with United. Again, Sporting expect five million of those to be realistically achievable. Um, what forced Manchester United's hand was that offer from Barcelona, which was absolutely genuine, which if you've been listening to the transfer podcast, we had flagged up that there were uh, a number of European clubs who wanted to sign Bruno in the summer and were uh, preparing transfer bids with that in mind. None of them were able to do a deal now for financial fair play reasons. But once it got to 1st of July and they had a new uh, budget sheet, they would be able to do the deal for what was perceived as being a, a realistic price for the player. So 
there were a lot of complications on the final day. Um, Barcelona were simultaneously trying to sign Rodrigo Moreno from Valencia. Valencia became aware of Barcelona's interest in Bruno and suggested that uh, they take Bruno on loan for half a season uh, and that Barcelona made the, the transfer permanent in the summer. Sporting were happy with that with, on both parts, uh, for the player to go to Valencia and for him to go to Barcelona. The player himself rejected the move to Valencia. Um, I'm told, having been briefed um, by his personal agent, that uh, the, the move to Barcelona wouldn't be guaranteed, which uh, people involved in the transaction will tell you was incorrect. Ultimately, Barcelona offered 60 million guaranteed, plus two sets of bonuses of 10 and 10 for the player in the summer, which Sporting would have taken um, and which they were waiting to see um, whether Bruno finally completed with, with Manchester United. Because in normal circumstances, um, you'd expect a player to have an who has a choice of, of clubs, Manchester United or Barcelona, to go with Barcelona. But Bruno did not. Um, I'm told he was, he was tired of the situation. As I say, he wasn't particularly convinced that the Barcelona offer would be fully completed and wanted the deal to go through immediately. So ended up choosing Manchester United, flew over there yesterday, um, signed today. Uh, I understand the shirt number is going to be 18. Um, and United have finally got a player um, who they have been in discussions about since the summer. It was just at the tail end of the summer that they that proposal was made to them that you, you can do this deal now and, and beat Tottenham to the player, but they decided to wait and wait until their season had gone into decline to the stage where they're now en route for their worst uh, Premier League points total um, ever and, uh, and desperately need reinforcement. And you see Solskjaer talking about getting a player in who can score goals and create goals. Um, but the problem with this negotiating stance, and we've, we've talked in the podcast of where the errors came and how uh, Manchester United were led to believe that they could get the player for 50 million and that sporting would fold in the end. Um, the, the delaying tactics and the, um, the, the desire to wait till the last moment, hoping to get that deal done 50 million, expecting it to get done at 50 million with unachievable bonuses, resulted in them not having the player for the best part of January. And they haven't saved money by doing that despite what they've been briefing, uh, despite briefs that Sporting increased their valuation on the player during the, the last um, days of the negotiations. That's not true. Sporting's evaluation from the start was that they wanted to get a deal that they could present to the fans as being worth between 75 and 80 million euros, which is what they did in the end. But this long wait... Um, results from Manchester United not having a player that they've identified as being very important to the rebuild. They've played multiple games January. They've lost many of those matches. They're now out of the League Cup after um, winning at Manchester City uh, last night in, in the League Cup semi-final, but winning by just one goal, which wasn't enough to go through. Therefore, out of what was their most realistic chance of winning silverware, this season. That would have been a final against Aston Villa. They're in fifth place in the Premier League, but they are have a cluster of teams uh, within one result of going beyond them. And if you just calculate how much, for example, those Premier League places are worth in terms of prize money, 
um, and think how many more points Manchester United might have been able to acquire had they had Bruno Fernandes through this period, how much of a better chance they, they would have had of qualifying for the Champions League, which has even greater repercussions for their income next year. And, and think, was that an intelligent ploy to try and save money from Ed Woodward? And you have to say um, it wasn't. And therefore, you can understand the listener's question about of, of asking um, and criticising Woodward's negotiating skills, because this is not by any means the first time that Manchester United have um, cost themselves money and made errors in the transfer market in the, the, the pure negotiation process. Okay, we've got another question now for from at Adam Conlin ten. That's Independent Wolves Media. He's asked, "Will Rojo do anything this season other than shake hands with the fans when he attends games as a spectator?" Well, he certainly should be doing something, Marcus Rojo, for the rest of the season because he has uh, finally managed to get out of Manchester United. Um, we flagged up in the podcast that he wanted to go to Estudiantes, the club he started in professional football with in Argentina and was pushing his agent and Manchester United to allow him to go there rather than move to Fenerbahce, which would have been a more lucrative financial deal um, and would probably have been better for United in terms of, uh, of securing some kind of transfer fee. What The, the structure of that deal is it's a one-year loan um, United, I'm told, will pay the majority of his salary while he's at the Estudiantes, and it is a very significant salary, £8 million pounds a year, um, is the, the salary that was given to him in 2018 when uh, the club decided to give him a contract extension until, I believe, 2021. Um, United have an option to bring him back from that loan should they get an offer from a European club in the summer. Therefore, they can terminate it and sell the player then. So basically, it seems hoping that putting him in the shop window of Argentinian football will be sufficient for them to get a deal down the line, which is a, a strange practice and not one that's commonly followed in European football. And it kind of emphasises the, 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 the contracts, misguided contracts that Edward and Manchester United have been handing out in that Rojo was given that deal. I believe since he get, got that contract in March 2018, he has played less than 500 minutes of Premier League football for Manchester United, but on a salary um, which makes him one of the best-paid defenders in Europe. That's a very significant amount of money. It um, prevented him from going to Sporting as part of the Bruno Fernandes deal. It's been a block on him going to clubs like Everton who've tried to sign him and which role would have been prepared to go to um, last summer when they, they came in for the player. So kind of another example of the of the misguided uh, recruitment and retention policy that Manchester United have followed over recent years and has got them into this difficult position where you have the manager openly talking about uh, how much surgery they have to do in the squad and, and you know using that as an excuse essentially for the poor performances and, and more importantly poor results this season we've got another question now from uh, at bmj 106 i think it's ben johnson is the the name on the account and he said perhaps a very stupid question ben there are no stupid questions here on the transfer window <laughs> podcast especially when i am the host 
And he's asked, why is Jude Bellingham's proposed transfer not covered by EPPP, which is the Elite Player Performance Plan, Duncan? It's actually a very good question and a um, question that a lot of people in football have been asking and a, a sort of element that people in football have been trying to exploit. Because Bellingham is only 16, he hasn't um, signed on full professional terms yet. So what that means is were he to refuse to sign a full professional deal with Birmingham, any club would be able to sign him and play uh, a determined um, compensation package um, based on the EPPP uh, and potentially based on um, a tribunal um, should Birmingham protest against that price. And my understanding is that a lot of agents have gone to Bellingham and his parents and suggested to him he does exactly that, that the, the way to maximise the financial package for the player would be to essentially take advantage of Birmingham and take advantage of his youth, not sign a full professional contract and uh, take whatever money was available for his transfer fee. And we're talking about a, a bit of £25 million being in place from Manchester United. Take that money and have it go towards his next contract. My understanding is he's refused to do that. Um, I've been told by multiple sources that he, his father has actually uh, threatened to report agents who have been soliciting uh, that kind of deal from him to the authorities. And Bellingham is, for everything I hear, he's making it clear that he wants to sign with Birmingham and would prefer to carry on playing at the club. Um, certainly his focus and his father's focus has been on getting the right development path. And there is a, a fear that were he to sign for a club of Manchester United stature uh, and lose the ability to play in the first team that he has at Birmingham, then it would hold back his development. Birmingham, as we told you in the podcast, um, are prepared to sell in this window. Um, £25 million will probably do it unless they get a better bid from one of the several clubs who are also interested in them. Um, but they want to retain the player for 18 months as part of that deal. Um, the latest I've heard today is that United have had made another attempt to try and convince the player that that is the right place for him to go. That's the right deal to sign. And he's still resisting. So they still haven't got this one across the line. And it's, I think it, it is a very intelligent question because this is an unusual situation. And you're looking at um, a player and a father who are prioritising the long term in the player's career and trying to work out how to turn him into the best footballer possible down the line. Uh, and quite often you don't see that in the modern game. Uh, and I think it's quite refreshing to see that from Jude Bellingham and his, and his parents. OK, another United question here from, for, from at Dave 13 He's asked, is there any truth in United's links to former PSG director Antero Henrique? Interesting that United would potentially go for someone who is better at selling than buying if you go by his record at PSG and Porto. Is this a sign of the flatlining of revenue at Old Trafford? I think that's interesting um, logic from Samuel Dave, who's, who's asked a few questions on the good questions in the podcast before. Um, certainly Manchester United have a terrible record selling players. Um, they, 
think someone did a piece recently talking about asking when the last time they sold a player for a profit on the original purchase price was, and it is there have been very, very few in the Ed Woodward era. Um, generally, they end up stuck with players like Rojo, um, Phil Jones, for example, giving them new contracts. Luke Shaw would be another example there. Shaw were given a, a very lucrative new contract and still not bedded down as the first choice left back for the team. Still not had a long, consistent run there, despite um, Solskjaer recently describing him as potentially the, le the best left back in the country. Um, which is an interesting comment given he play, frequently plays Brandon Williams ahead of him at present. So there is an argument that one of the reasons Manchester United need a sports director in isn't just to improve the ingoing recruitment, it's to improve the outgoing recruitment and to know when to cash in on players, know when to get them out the door um, if they are uh, using up a squad place or um, are overpaid. Uh, and having the contacts in the game to find the right place to get them out, because this is a very important part of modern football. It's not simply about possessing the footballers and having a, a roster which you believe is worth a certain value and then re resisting selling that player unless you um, manage to, to get the value, which is why a lot of these players have been stuck at United, because Woodward has said, no, that's not enough. I think I can make more money for them down the line. But you the best sports directors who have players in that situation are working on getting them out all the time and trying to find buyer clubs and trying to create markets for them. Um, Antero Enrique, I am told, um, has had no contact from Manchester United. I was told a friend of mine, upon being asked that question, said there has been no contact, which is the same situation with Luis Campos, who we also saw linked with the job recently. Also, I'm told no contact with Campus, who would be, uh, I think, a, a more um, intelligent uh, and a more obvious solution than Antero Enrique, given his history both of, of securing really good talents for clubs like Leon Monaco and selling them uh, at, um, at, at huge profit um, and, and being able to build a team structure that's in, in Monaco's case won the French League, the only team to, to take the title off Paris Saint-Germain, and Lille's case getting them to be runners-up and into the Champions League this season. Overall, we're now two transfer windows past the stage when Ed Woodward and Manchester United were briefing that sports director was a priority to them, and that sports director hasn't been brought in. Um, and you wonder how serious Woodward has been and whether these stories are part of an attempt to assuage the support again over what has been quite a broad demand that a sports director comes in. Um, I know that people who have talked to them, talked to Woodward and talked to the club about this role, have been concerned that they would not have proper powers. And the, 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 the sense was that what Woodward wanted was another person to head up the recruitment team, his very expensively assembled recruitment team, and uh, to be a front for the transfer market process without having the ultimate authority to say, this is the player we should buy, I want this part of the budget allocated to him, I'm not expecting you, I'm not, I don't want to be giving recommendations to you and having you make the final decision on this, if I come in as sports director, I've got to be able to choose who the players are and structure the squad 
as I feel appropriate because that should be the reason why you're offering me the job. Question from Alan Munro, and it's an interesting one. He's asked, what do you make of United appointing Neil Ashton? It appears to have backfired pretty spectacularly, has it not? Another example of Woodward's naivety? Anyway, keep up the good work, best podcast out there. This is a man after my own heart, Duncan. <laughs> we, we had a, there's been a lot of questions about Neil Ashton, who was the formerly the uh, chief football writer at The Sun, um, obviously presented for Sky Sports and worked in, for our American listeners, well known from his work from NBC. He has recently resigned all of the positions, um, set up his own media group, and his first client has been Ed Woodward, Manchester United. Um, he gave an interview um, on television to explain what he was planning to do, and uh, his words were that part of my job is to re-establish Manchester United full stop. I got to know Ed Woodward a little bit. I discovered that the portrayal of Ed Woodward is not accurate. It's a guy that absolutely loves Manchester United. I want to change perception of not only himself, but the ownership of the club. Um, it's not unusual for, for clubs to change their communications strategy, and particularly clubs that have a bad image in the press, which you know, you, you can't argue that uh, Manchester United and particularly Ed Woodward have a poor image in the in the press. What is, I think, unusual in my experience of of football comms is for the person who is being put in to so openly talk about what he wants to do um, and talk about the chief executive of the club in that way and kind of explain what he's doing. Generally, PRs in football try and remain quiet. They try and remain unquoted. They try and remain in the background. Um, it's, a com it's a very complex job. Manchester United have a track record and a history of appointing people who don't have previous experience in the organisation and running of football clubs. So you look at Ed Woodward himself, uh, chartered accountant, investment banker, who has not uh, and did not work as an executive of any other football club and owes his position at the club to his part in the Glazers' leverage takeover of it. In fact, every um, executive director of Manchester United Football Club is in the same position. They have never been directors of a football club before. So... You could argue that this um, appointment of someone who hasn't done communications um, as a specialist role before um, follows that history. And I'm told it was Ed Woodward's decision to appoint here. Um, the proof, of course, will be in, in what happens down the line. Um, but as I say, it's unusual to have a, a, a comms specialist who talk so prominently about what they want to achieve uh, and um, whose role is highlighted by the supporters and, and seem to be obvious in the, in the change of coverage in some of the newspapers 
since he has, uh, has started. Okay, that was uh, really interesting. Duncan, uh, we're going to move away from Manchester United now and to some of the other clubs uh, in the Premier League. And we've got a question from at Serious Wands. I think I pronounced that right. Who knows? Twitter names. Anyway, any chance Bale returns to the Premier League before the end of the window? If so, does it have to be Spurs? And if so, at what cost? Look, Gareth Bale leaving Real Madrid has been a story um, for window after window, and the block has always been Gareth Bale. Um, we know Real Madrid have been prepared to shift him out. We know he's on a huge salary in Madrid. Uh, part of it is dependent on being at Madrid, so there are a lot of a lot of his income is dependent on commercial deals that require him to remain at the club, which has been one of the complications. Um, he is one of a number of of strikers who are um, available on the market. He'd be the premium um, loan choice, if you like, if a club can get him out alongside someone like Luka Jovic, who Madrid are also trying to shift out. You have um, Christoph Piantec, who Hertha Berlin, um, a player to have put the money down at acceptable level for Milan to buy him and take him out of the club and stop him from going to um, Tottenham, who had an interest in taking him alone with an option to buy. To buy. You've got Olivier Giroud, uh, desperate to get out of Chelsea uh, and being connected with a, a number of clubs, including um, Inter, who have had a long look at him. Lazio is another one. Um, you have William Jose, who Tottenham have tried to buy as a, a stand-in for um, Harry Kane. Um, I'm told that deal is very close to being dead because of the the fee that Real Sociedad have insisted on, which is which I understand is 30 million euros, and um, Daniel Levy has not been prepared to go to that level for a striker having spent um, a fairly significant fee on Steven Bergwin from PSV Eindhoven, who can operate as a utility striker. You've you've also got Dries Martins at Napoli. Um, who Chelsea are trying to sign at present and who I'm told Napoli would like to move on before his contract expires. Um, but they want a significant transfer fee in this window and are hoping that kind of desperation amongst a number of clubs to bring strikers in will allow them to achieve it. Ironically, Mertens himself, I'm told, isn't particularly keen on leaving Napoli now. He'd rather wait until the summer. Um, he's, I think, four goals away before uh, from becoming... Napoli's all-time leading scorer taking that uh, title off Maradona and would like to do that before he leaves. And obviously, if he moves tomorrow, um, that's not going to happen. Um, I think there has been interest from Tottenham in Bale. There's been a query there. Um, I think there is a long-standing interest from Manchester United. But you have to convince the player to come out and you have to be able to hatch a deal with Madrid terms of the percentage of the salary will take and Madrid obviously would like an obligatory option to buy um, in the summer um, and the, the block has always been Gareth Bale refusing to go, being happier to stay in Madrid, um, happier to uh, spend some time um, polishing his reputation of his nickname amongst the, the team players as the golfer rather than um, playing football. Uh, so that and the cost I think makes it very difficult for a deal to be done tomorrow, but you never know.
We've now got a question from at Tom Smith. Nice and easy one there for me to pronounce. Are Barcelona really after Richarlison? Duncan, obviously this is based around uh, reports that a hundred million euro bid went in for the Everton striker. Is that believable? Well, what was your feeling about it when you when you heard? I have to say, I, I was sat at the Daily Record uh, desk, plugged into our transfer blog and saw the story come up on Twitter, and I'd just taken a, a wee sip of my tea, and I spat it out all over my <laughs> iMac. And this is, I'm not, this is, there's not a, a word of, uh, of a lie about this. I, I think that's probably the reaction of some of the Barcelona supporters when they heard that too. Um, what I can tell you, I've, I've talked to a few people, serious people in football about this, um, contacts in Barcelona, who uh, have always proved very reliable. Uh, and not one of them has come back saying this is a serious offer. Uh, you have to look at the context here. Um, Richarlison is represented by Kia Jirabshin, um, who has very good contacts with a number of people in the English media. And Kia Jirabshin is also close to Farhad Moshiri, um, the titular owner of Everton. Um, Richarlison's probably their most valuable player at present. Um, therefore, it doesn't do Everton any harm to have him linked with Barcelona in this window. Everyone knows Barcelona are trying to sign a striker at present, um, but they don't have great finances available to do it, which is why they've been trying to get someone like Rodrigo from Valencia as a short-term fix with the idea that they go and try and solve the problem properly in the summer. Um, so it suits Everton, or the, the people with the money at Everton have that story out. It doesn't do the agent any harm at all to have that story out. I think it's had quite a lot of coverage, both in the UK and globally off the back of that coverage in the UK. Um, it's the kind of thing you see in this sort of window, this period of the window. It's an, a, an advertising ploy, is how it was described to me, and as a, a kind of vanity bid. Um, and I would be in shock and spitting, I don't drink tea, but I'd be spitting my coffee all over the place if Richarlison does end up at Barcelona tomorrow um, with a 100 million euro check going in Everton's direction. Absolutely. Right, we've got one from at Lad 9 Do you think he's from Newcastle? I think he might be. <laughs> Will Jared Bowen be a Newcastle player on February the 1st? Toon Lad 9, it's not Alan Shearer, is it? <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, there's, yeah, look, Newcastle have been pursuing Jared Bowen for a while. I can tell you there's a lot of interest in Bowen, who's at Hull City, 23-year-old um, winger. He's got very good numbers over his three full seasons. Uh, playing for Hull in the Championship. So he scored 14-22 last season. He's got 16 already this season. Um, I'm told that the Allen family who own Hull City will sell for the right money um, in this window. So we're talking the rest of today or tomorrow. I understand there have been negotiations going on today. Um, Newcastle are a club who are interested. Um, my information is that the player's agent is keen on taking him to the club. However, I'm not sure Hull City's preference would be to sell the player there. 
Um, been talk of interest from Crystal Palace, which would make sense, um, given that they have been attempting to get Yannick Carrasco uh, from Dalian and are looking for uh, quick goal-scoring wingers, which is what Bowen is. believe there is interest also from West Ham United. I'm told there's serious money available from the Premier League to take him. And with the Allen family having a strategy at Hull City of sort of bringing through young players um, who they can sell on for significant fees, um, with the club being available for sale, um, I would be surprised if they turned down uh, a big offer for Bowen tomorrow if they can convince the player to go to um, a Premier League club. I believe he's asking for quite significant wages as well, so that, that is an additional factor in this. OK, Duncan, enough of this transfer news. It's time for the donkeys. This week's category is in tribute to Nigel Farage, described today as a flag-waving buffoon for his antics in the European Parliament. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's every bit as embarrassing as you might imagine a naked show of trolling by Farage could be. So with that in mind, we have our sights on those who have celebrated a, vic celebrated a victory that is either hollow or proved ultimately to be hollow. So without further ado, the nominees are as follows. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for expressing delight at his side's 1-0 victory at City, despite it being a meaningless result in their quest to reach a final. Alan Pardew for what else but his ridiculous cup final dad dance when Crystal Palace were eventually defeated in the FA Cup final by Louis van Gaal's Manchester United. And finally, PSG. Their players posted on social media suggesting their tie with Barcelona was over after a 4-0 win in Paris in the Champions League. We all remember what happened next with a Neymar-inspired Barca winning 6-1 to go through. Donkey, who's our winner? I first got to mention that the, the disgusting image that came into my head of a, a naked Nigel Farage <laughs> giving apologize. the Jack to the European... <laughs> Parliament that you created for our listeners there. Oof. Before uh, you do that, Duncan, sorry, sorry. We need we have a a, a sort of tradition here, which is, and this is for Mr. McGarry. <laughs> there we go. That's the the envelope being opened. <laughs> After you've already announced the nominees, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, smooth as ever. Yeah, no, <laughs> Um, okay, so remind me of the nominees. Now you've done, now you've, done <laughs> you've actually opened the envelope because let's yes. be sure you've got the right ones. Yes, because it could be different. I mean, the, yeah. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Alan Pardew, or PSG? Certainly, Alan Pardew has the uh, the the most embarrassing uh, from a, a visual point of view of those um, early celebrations, the, that, uh, the famous dad dance, which turned into. Um, that dance of despair as Manchester United went on to win the uh, that particular FA Cup uh, and probably the end of Pardew's career at the top level, certainly on a downward uh, cycle since then. The Paris Saint-Germain, um, Kurosawa and uh, Rabiot uh, celebrations uh, against Barcelona of the 4-0 win definitely qualify as early celebrations. Uh, and uh, one of the most painful endings was that uh, uh, huge defeat at Camp Nou um, 
in the return match, albeit, you have to say, although Paris Saint-Germain made a, a mess of that tactically with Unai Emery in charge and, and brought gave Barcelona the opportunity to get back into the game. Uh, just about every possible refereeing decision went in Barcelona's favour, um, which is something we hasn't been uncommon in uh, Champions League matches when, when Barcelona are involved. So I'm going to let them off there and, and give this one to Solskjaer, who in the space of two League Cup semi-finals has... Um, been beaten 3-1 at Old Trafford uh, comprehensively by Manchester City and, and announced that the, the fact that Pep Guardiola put a near full sense, strength side out uh, was a mark of uh, respect to Manchester United and showed what strides the team was making and taking forward. And then after putting out a five-man defence um, and uh, essentially it seemed playing for a 1-0 win, certainly not uh, doing much to try and score goals, which is testified by the only two shots they had on target throughout that entire match, um, goes to the press conference and, and talks about how um, it shows that they've won, they've, that they've managed to win two games at Manchester City in the space of six weeks, shows how much progress they're making and, um, and that they're on the right path. Um, you know, it's easier to get a 1-0 victory against the team, um, even a team that missed as many clear-cut chances as Manchester City missed in that game when the opposition go through to the final, um, as long as they only lose by one goal. Yeah, social reaction was the kind of thing that Roy Keane and Gary Neville would have a dim view of if it wasn't Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Yeah, you wonder how any other Manchester United manager would um, would be analysed by former Manchester United players if he went into a game against Manchester City where they had to score a minimum of two goals, even to get to a penalty shootout, with a back five playing counter-attacking football and uh, not creating many chances in the game, um, and then celebrated it as a, a kind of... Uh, Pyrrhic victory and an indicator of, of what progress this team are making. I'll not do my Roy Keane impression, lest be arrested. Um, so I'll just move on to say that that's all from us for today. Uh, you can continue the debate by getting in contact with us. We have our own transfer window account at Transfer Podcast, but you can also speak to us individually. You can speak to me at Johnny R. McFarlane. But the best man to talk to, let's be honest, about transfer news and transfer affairs, and of course the transfer podcast, is Mr. Duncan Castles, who can be reached, surprisingly enough, at Duncan Castles. You can go online, if you will, and give us a five-star review uh, on iTunes, as this helps get the podcast as many listeners as possible, so we'd be muchly appreciating anyone that goes and does that. Until next time, thanks for listening.